Do you love racing? Then you've come to the right place. We discuss current topics in most asphalt series, as well as deep dives into the history of racing, race cars, and the drivers. I'm NASCAR driver Derek Cope. I share some of my personal stories, as well as highlighting those people that shaped my career and others. I'm Alicia Cope, and we also take on controversial and engaging topics on many subjects, including NASCAR, as well as tips and tricks that have worked for us in building teams from scratch, keeping relationships, and finding new roads. Hopefully our experiences will inspire you to reach your own goals. Let's get started. Welcome back to Race Theory, episode 24, People Who Need People. Sing it, babe. People, people who need people. (laughs) Yeah, the old Barbara Streisand, yeah, well... And how true is that statement? It is about as true as they come. And in racing, this is a people business like most businesses. And you can be, you can make or break yourselves with the talented people. You certainly can. And uh, you can be, as Barbara said, the luckiest people in the world, or you could be the most unluckiest people in the world. And I think we're on the latter end of the stick most of the time. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of variables in when you're in situations. And as we've always said, timing is everything. So when you're in a situation where maybe you're having to expedite processes, uh, you know, trying to, you know, a, a new startup type race team, just for example, I guess, you know, when you have a startup race team at the highest levels, people probably are reluctant to think uh, that, you know, you're going to be proficient right out of the box, unless, you know, you are a team with, you know, perception of a lot of money and, you know, all the capabilities to throw money at something. And that really is the old adage in motorsports really is, you know, how much money, you know, money buys speed, basically. It certainly does. So I think, you know, if, if you don't have the perception that you have a great deal of money, then sometimes, you know, that is going to be a deterrent for people to look at you as a real viable uh, place to work, um, you know, and someplace that maybe has stability, which, you know, ultimately, I think people want stability and they, you know, they want benefits, they want stability, they want, you know, what they want. And I think, you know, after COVID, I think that's even more so, right? I think people really want it all. They've been given opportunities to, you know, stay at home and work. They've had time off. They've gotten paid to stay at home, you know, paid, paid time off. And the reluctancy, I think maybe for people to go back to work, right, has instilled something in them, you know, and, you know, again, the millennials, same thing. I think they, they just want something different. They want, you know, benefits. They want, their own, you know, a better quality of time and, you know, things that they want to do. Right. So it's all, it is all about them and what they really want. I think that's how I see it this day and age. And, you know, in racing, it's difficult for a manager or, you know, even in other businesses, right. It's upper management to have to deal with all the, the different, you know, characters and the, all the different, you know, Personalities. personalities that these guys have and you know you really have to you know look at all of them find their strengths find their weaknesses and you have to find you know a way to mesh those people together and get the most out of them and find people that can complement each other 
and complement the program over, or the overall business model that you have. And I've always felt like that, you know, again, it's difficult because when you, if it's your own team, if it's your own business, then you have, I feel like, more flexibility to give and take. But when you work for somebody and you're running a company or a business, whether you have shareholders or, you know, you have, you're the CEO, president, you know, whatever you, the case may be, you have an obligation to that entity to perform and to, you know, make conscious decisions that aren't always maybe what you would want to do or what you would feel like, you know, that's best for the people or the personnel, but there's certain guidelines and parameters and things that they set that you have to follow and it makes it more difficult. And sometimes the employees just don't see it that way or, and you know, it becomes, becomes a bit fractured, you know, at times, right. When you want to do something, but it can't happen. And, you know, we've been on, I've been in racing for 40 years. So I've seen, I've owned my own cup teams, my own Bush series team, my own truck team. Uh, I've, you know, I've run driver development programs. I've had my own shock absorber companies. I've taken products to market. You, you have people that you hire and that work under you for the most part, your entire life. And very seldom have I actually had to work for people or, you know, you know, be a manager other than the Starcom thing, really, right. Where we, you know, we did have people that we had to answer to. So the dynamic has been different for the majority of our life. You know, the entrepreneurial, you know, type of lifestyle that you and I both have lived, you know, leads you to look at things differently than possibly we had to when we were with Starcom and, you know, had to work for them. So, you know, again, the people aspect is something that we have, you know, died by the sword uh, in a lot of ways. And I think it's been, a, it's been a struggle. I think, you know, you look at work ethic and I've always talked about work ethic and I'm a firm believer that you really, you have to want to be the best that you can be. And not all people have that mentality. They don't have that attitude. And sometimes going to work is just that it's going to the job and getting through the day and going home and, you know, just going on with their, with their life. Right. And it's just, it's just something that they have to do. And, you know, I feel like I've been fortunate for the majority of my life to, you know, look at it differently. You know, I've enjoyed, you know, going to work. I've enjoyed uh, doing my job and I've lived, you know, for, the the passionate side of whatever I was doing and it drove me and you know sometimes I guess I'm not as receptive to seeing people you know their side of things as much because you know I've always viewed it differently and even even when you know you get in the throes and you understand that you know you're you're pushing people and you're trying to get more out of them you know and sometimes you feel like you're trying to make them better but not always is that what they want. And I think, you know, sometimes that's where I become misguided 
you know, is that I feel like that, you know, I'm trying to really help people. I'm trying to push them to be better, push them to be, you know, you know, capable of doing what I know I can teach and what I can convey. And I feel like that they'll be in a better position to make more money, be more stable, you know, be more proficient. And I'm more hopeful for them. And some people have definitely taken that opportunity from you and used it uh, for the betterment of themselves. And we can name several people that actually worked for us when we ran the Xfinity team. And then they made their way up into the Cup Series after they left our team. And even some of them came back and worked for us again after we had the Starcom. And seeing you as a owner driver, and then seeing you as a manager over everything, I can definitely see exactly what you're talking about. Because when you're the owner, and especially the driver, your expectation is very high. And you hire people based on what you want and what you see in people and people that you trust. Now, sometimes that was definitely, as you say, a double-edged sword because from our experiences, when you have limited budgets and money, we had to choose people based off money. And that is always, in my opinion, not a good thing to do unless those are volunteers that are just in incredibly hungry and they want the job. And so they'll do anything that they can to, to learn and to please you and to work their way up the ladder. And we have had it happen, but it is rare. So learning from our experiences, choosing less to save money will actually cost you more in the long run. And uh, I'll talk about a story about that just a little bit later on, how it cost us dearly. But then as a general manager of Starcom Racing, I saw your expectation started high, but the sometimes it wears you down when you're dealing with people that are just punching a time clock. They're not there for the duration of a dream, if you will. They are coming in because they have families to feed. And I think that's where the majority of employees are now. And they're not vested like were vested. This is not um, something that they've built from scratch. And they don't find the same pride in it that we do, especially if they're not on the road crew. So the road crew is a little bit different in that they are kind of their own little team. They travel together, they work together, they sleep together, they spend a lot of time together. And every victory that we have on the track is very inspiring. And then on the flip, every tragedy is that much more devastating. So I think that it was difficult for you to go from really high expectation to medium expectation. And then again, we do have to answer to the owners. And so they had to check the boxes. These are people that had to be educated, had to have experience, had to have you know, um, a certain amount of um, qualifications. And so sometimes I think we ended up hiring people that we probably wouldn't have when we were running our own program because we did a lot of the hiring based on um, trust and our gut feeling. But I will say um, I definitely was the person that if I had a bad feeling about hiring somebody, I would let you know. And most times, I think you would have to agree that if we did end up hiring them, that came to fruition. I think I just have a sixth sense about um, 
you know, whether or not someone's a, a good or bad egg. And I don't know where that comes from, but um, I would say most of the time I was right. Wouldn't you? I would say so. I think that's something that, you know, you base things off of, you know, their character, you get a gut feeling. And I think a lot of times I was in positions where I needed to fill voids. And, you know, it's a, it's contrasting, you know, dimensions there because I know what my needs are from a mechanical standpoint, you know, or something to be able to fulfill voids and areas that, you know, we don't have anybody that can do it. And sometimes you're thrusted into making decisions, in my opinion, for an expertise of something that you really are going to need that you don't really have. And sometimes, yeah, maybe that's not the right, you know, character, the not, not the right personality, and it doesn't really mesh with the overall, you know, sense of the team, you know, or the culture of the team. And so, you know, attractive and, and I think that's what we fell into um, when we were at Starcom. I think, you know, before that, a lot of our decisions and a lot of our things were predicated solely on, on money and funding. We didn't have major sponsorship. We didn't have the foundation or the backing to, you know, to, or the fallback, right? To back the backstop, if you will that would help you, you know, wait it out or pay somebody more and get a better quality guy when we just didn't have it. Nor did we have the ability that, you know, we were going to, you know, we didn't have the equipment to, we couldn't buy best equipment. Want to run up front. They want to showcase their potential. And, you know, the profilers or the people that want the notoriety or whatever, they want to be at places where they're going to get bonuses for wins or, you know, or polls or whatever, which the bigger teams do. But at Starcom, I think really, you know, some of the issues that you have there too is the people that we hire, you know, were some of the older people that maybe be, had come, you know, uh, they left the big teams, had, you know, had been crew chiefs and had been, you know, in the limelight at some point in their career, but you know, maybe had fallen out of favor, had maybe down on their luck, you know, had some issues or whatever, but you know, they come in and they think that, you know, they know a lot about racing. They know a lot about certain things. And, you know, I'm trying to run a program how I feel like I want to see it run. And everybody that, you know, when you put, when you put that caliber of people that may be older and, you know, they're pretty set in their ways as well, there can be, you know, not animosity, but discord and people just kind of, you know, don't pull all in the same direction, right? They want to do, they, they feel like that, you know, they can not really undermine you, but they do things that ultimately undermine what you're doing, right? And your authority. And so many times it's very disruptive. And again, goes against the grain of what you're trying to build with a small group of people, which I've always had to do. I've never really been in one of the upper tier teams. I've never been in the position where I've had, you know, so many people there that, you know, could do specialized things. Everybody had to be able to be multifaceted and could do a lot of things. And when you have the bigger teams, there's a lot of really talented people that you draw small amounts of things from. And, 
you know, you have more people at your disposal, you can delegate more authority to those folks and you can listen and you can kind of pull and, you know, dissect things from them and make maybe some better decisions. Well, and it's very interesting you say the bigger teams. And when we did have the opportunity to hire some of the specialized positions from bigger teams, you could see the difference. Those people, though they were very skilled in the position that they were in, they felt that was their only job. They weren't going to be multifaceted. They were not going to be a jack of all trades. And, you know, the old adage, jack of all trades and master of none, we might not have the mastery, but we always looked for crew members that could do a little bit of everything. They might not be the best at it, but they could do everything. And when you get to the bigger teams, you definitely notice that these specialists are only going to do that one thing. And even if they are able to do other things, they kind of get into that um, mindset that this is my job. And that's not my job. That's, I'm not doing that. And it really comes down to teamwork. When you have a small team, and we were very clear when I would do interviews with people that came from the bigger teams, is that we have to have you do everything. You have to be willing to do everything. If the car chief needs you to work on the fuel cell and you're only used to doing interiors or the crew chief wants you to go, um, you know, run for parts, but you're used to doing, you know, something on the car, you have to be willing to... Um, do the lower, lowlier things and not complain about it. And I want to bring up too that the negativity uh, you had mentioned when you have someone that might start casting a shadow on someone's decision. They don't quite agree with you know a decision either you made or the crew chief made or however it it works out. The negativity will ferment the whole crew very quickly. Just like the scripture says, the little leaven ferments the whole lump. I have seen a very happy-go-lucky, very congruent group of crew members go south so quickly because of one crew member that would sabotage the entire culture of the shop. And I love that word that you mentioned because the culture of your shop it has to be positive. It has to be momentum. It has to be energy. Because if you don't have a person or a leader at your shop that makes sure that that culture is how it remains, it definitely will affect. And so the leader's energy, whether positive or negative, is going to affect everybody else. But I will say anyone with a negative attitude will influence those more. And just like the um, example that we would tell our daughters about, you know, um, bad association, you know, the example of the pit. If you've got someone in a pit and you're walking by, it's so much easier for someone to pull someone into the pit. But how hard is it to pull somebody out? That's hard. And it's very difficult to right the ship after you've had somebody destroy your team. So again, learning from our experience, if you can pinpoint, once you see something negative come up in your business, shop, crew, team, where it hasn't been that way before, diagnose it quickly. Find out who is the culprit and weed them out very quickly. And chances are you will probably have to let them go because if they are a pot stirrer or they are a negative person, that's not going to change, in my opinion. I think, in my opinion, as you said, we have been through um, a lot of 
different situations. It's true, I think, in most businesses. You know, I think it's all relevant, right? Because racing's a business, and you know, other businesses they're all relative in a lot of ways. The things that we've seen is that in our in racing, you know, no matter what, if you really look at it, and I look at it this way, is most people in racing work underneath somebody. They parasite knowledge. So if they're not truly innovative and really understand the principles of racing, they've just learned something and been taught a certain way to do things. And they take that and then they expand on it or they just use that same concept and try to put themselves in a, a better position by undermining somebody else to elevate themselves within the organization to get more money, a bigger, better position, you know, and then perception where they try to get the ear of, of the owners or, you know, somebody higher up in the, uh, in the hierarchy, or they, they start to try to like, you know, band and take the guys to lunch and, and start to, you know, put things in their ear and in their minds about ways to, you know, to get what they want or need. And, and then you start, and what you do is, you know, if you, if you give in to those people, you start to empower those people. Yes. And I think so many times, you know, you try to be, it's kind of like that cross between how much do you give in? How much do you try to concede and, you know, you know, give it be as fair as you possibly can. And at the same time, you know, you have to be standing firm and, you know, and, not empower people and groups of people that come in with grievances or, you know, sticking something in front of you about how much time they work or this or that when they made a decision, they hired on for a certain pay rate grade and, but they always want more. And so I think, you know, you just, it's a fine line between empowering people and then, you know, keeping an eye on what the people that are doing that are always wanting to run or steer the ship. They feel like that, you know, maybe the person in charge is not capable or they don't really have respect for them. They've been with a big organization or a better organization at some time. And maybe they think that, well, I can run this better than this guy. I don't need this guy, you know, and I'd rather have the money or I'd have the higher position. And then they start to do things again, you know, within the organization while your back is turned, while you're not paying attention or you're, you're working on other things when you've delegated the authority to them to take care of the other things that you didn't want to, then it becomes a festering sore. And at that point, then you have to go in and you got to find a way to either cut the sore out or go in there and... <laughs> nice analogy there. <laughs> well, bottom line is, you know, it's sometimes you just have to go out and you just have to discard that that problem. True that. I, I will agree with that. And I want to um, just make a notation to the listeners is empowering is a, is a positive word. And I think I would rather use the word enabling when it's in a negative connotation. Like you say, you, you don't want to empower a negative behavior, someone who is causing dissension. And I, it's like, just, you know, like you enable, you know, an alcoholic, you, you don't want to enable a person who has the positive energy to to invade that and but not by wanting to but by choices that you make or things that you do it's misconstrued as you're basically empowering them giving them a voice and it's much like a union or you know you know when you give when you 
people, you allow people to create, you know, entities within entity or whatever, you're putting them in a position where now they have a, a soapbox to stand on and can combat you combatively with a group. And all of a sudden, if you're a small group anyways, and you've got five of your 20 people or 10 of your 20 people making demands, you've empowered those people. True that. And in my opinion, that, that is unacceptable behavior and you can't allow those things. So I think as a manager or a person in charge or the owner of your company, you have to be very cognizant and very careful about who you have in those positions, what they're doing and staying on top of them. And that's why I moved out of, you know, an office where I'm busy doing other things. And I went out into the floor where I could walk the floor every 20 minutes because I didn't like what I was seeing. I didn't like what I was hearing, and I felt like that I needed to make sure that I was seen walking the floor and, you know, you find clicks because you would always find people huddled together that were discontented. Right. And you can see it. You can, then all of a sudden they disperse quickly. You understand what's going on and you have to be able to find a way to find out what was going on. And I definitely want to put a disclaimer in here because that was happening when we had a crew chief that was um, definitely, um, and that was taken care of. So I I, I totally uh, hear what you're saying. And I think really the bottom line is choose people that have forward momentum. Surround yourself with people who are happy, not just skilled, but they're happy people because just being around them will elevate your team. And they're at the end. Unfortunately, right when we had to disband, uh, because we had to, we were forced to sell the charter, we had an excellent group of people together. They all respected each other. Um, they all elevated each other. They were positive, happy people. And the culture of our shop was very healthy. Um, there at the end, I think we had a great group of leaders leading the pack and, and it was enjoyable. So it was very disappointing to have to, um, to leave that group of people. You know, I think the one thing I've always talked about, you know, work ethic, right? And I'm, I'm big on that. I mean, you know, work ethic depended on personality a lot of times. I think, you know, basically how people view their job, how they are personally, you know, kind of like you just said a mention, you know, mentioned a minute ago about are they happy people? Are they, you know, enjoying being in that type of business, right? Well, that's dependent, you know, their work ethic sometimes is just dependent on their personality and how they view things, right? And how they view your company. And, you know, some people just want to be aligned with, you know, companies that I can align with their own values of how things should be run or what benefits they get or the types of things that you provide, you know, like, you know, the balance between work and and time off or life, you know, their job satisfaction, career progress, getting, you know, their family life, if you have, you know, and I thought was the one thing, that's one thing that I maybe throughout my, you know, years, you know, I spent a lot of time alone. So I really, the family life thing, you know, I didn't really. You didn't quite understand. Didn't you didn't have quite, children until later. That is correct. So I really didn't have that to draw from where I really was mindful of people having to get off at a certain time and go home and have time away to spend with their families. And I was more about driving, steering the ship and driving the, you know, uh, forward. And well, and you I had the fortunate circumstance uh, of your wife working with you as well. Right. So, you know, again, the whole dynamics 
you know, change depending on, you know, how you, you know, how your personality is and what you, you know, tolerate, what you tolerate and those types of things. So it is, it is a difficult task, you know, being in charge and owning your own deals because, you know, your livelihood depends on it. And at the same time, you have a reputation and your integrity and your character, you know, is which is important to me. When you work for somebody, I feel like you have a major obligation. It's more difficult to work for somebody because you need to run that like you would run your own business, making sure that, you know, you're not overspending, you know, you're making sure that, you know, if you're trying, you know, but you're trying to make money. So you're trying to run in the black, you're trying to make, but anytime you have to do those things, you have to make concessions. And, you know, ultimately it's not what you would maybe ultimately want to do, but you have to steer people down paths that is probably best for them, not best for the organization, not best for the race team, but for the owners and people that are spending money. And sometimes you have to make them understand the pitfalls and, you know, realistic expectations about if you do this, this will cost you X. The return on that will be X. And you got to make that decision. But, you know, your job and obligation, which you don't really want to do, is to tell them all those things and present it in the way because you know what they're ultimately going to want to do and it's not really what's necessary or needed to do. And then you do tell things and you say those things, but then they do exactly the opposite of what you think you've told them to do. And that's that's frustrating. So the frustration levels and, and all those things, I mean, it really is a difficult thing to, to do at the higher levels, especially when you're at the higher levels of the sport. When you are at, you know, the top of the line. And the expectation and the is expectation higher. expectation is higher. When you don't have the ultimate decision to make those things and you're vetoed, then it's difficult to swallow. Well, and there's two groups of people in this world. There's people who work for other people. And there's people who work for themselves. And you and I are examples of people that we have always worked for ourselves. And when we do work for other people, we can do it, but it is more challenging for certain. And we're more comfortable when we're leading our, our own organization. And although Starcom were was awesome, we were definitely um, given, um, you know, the full reins to run that program. They were very hands-off and, you know, we, we felt like we were owners of that team, even though we were just managers, but it definitely, um, showed us once again, when we, um, you know, are no longer our own, uh, team that it becomes the things that are hardest for us is where we don't find the commonality with the people. And that is people who, they do just punch a time clock and this is just a job and this is not their life. It They're not vested. And we don't, there's no reason for us to have any type of stigma on that for that. There is a lot, of, there are a lot of people out there that get experience or get education so that they can do a nine to five. And they are happy with that because that's stability and that is benefits and that is retirement and it's time with their family and it's measurable. They know they work this many hours and that they have this many hours off and, and they I, can plan. I think that's a millennial outlook on things. Well, it's gone. It's definitely, <laughs> I think it's always been the outlook. You just haven't recognized I, I it so. till now. I'm a little misguided. Yeah. Well, and you are the first guy to get there, the first and the last guy to leave. You are, you always had the, the work ethic of 
you know, overdo, go above and beyond, which you learn from your father and, and you've included in, in your book, that type of work ethic is vastly diminishing. And with Generation Z now, um, these kids are way more entitled than they are experienced. And with that comes a whole new um, generation that does not feel they need to go above and beyond. Well, all I know is that in the world of racing, the work from home model and the hybrid work models aren't really feasible <laughs> in motorsports to any great degree. So they are not, you know, in post COVID, you know, those are the types of things that I think, you know, have become like the stable fixture of, you know, how people view working and want working. Right. And that's, that's what we talked about earlier, right. About what that that model is now and what the, you know, the people want, right? So, and that's the companies they want to work for because they want to align themselves with companies that are willing to do those types of things. And that's where I would have a difficulty listening to somebody come in and tell me, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to work from home and uh, today and uh, I'll, you know, send you in, you know, the setups for the cars and all that kind of stuff. And the other people come set them up and I'd say, well, how about I stick this up your tail? Eh? You know, I don't <laughs> think that's going to work for me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, honestly, you know, again, it, it really is the older you get, you know, the more difficult it becomes, you know, rationalizing what people, you know, feel like is acceptable, you know, in the workplace. So, and again, I don't know, it's, it, it is, sometimes I just look at things nowadays and listen to people and, you know, and now I, I don't really have to, you know, say anything. I can just listen and shake my head. And, uh, sometimes, you know, it's, I leave, come back or I, you know, I <laughs> just shake my head or I have to like talk under my breath. I'm like, holy moly. But, Anyways. Well, for those of you out there, those listeners who I hear it all the time, how can I get a job in NASCAR? How can I get a job in racing? I think that would be our, you know, biggest piece of advice is, you know, you're probably going to have to start with a small team and the owner and operator of that small team is going to be looking for your work ethic. And are you going to go above and beyond? Are you going to come early and stay late? Because that really is qualities that you don't see as much anymore. So you will definitely stand out if you do those things. Yeah. Well, again, we probably beat a dead horse there. So <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll go on to something a little more, you know, exciting. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, obviously we're in Speed Weeks. And, you know, we talked a bit about, you know, the, the Daytona Rolex 24 and, you know, tonight, uh, you know, and these rate and these times right now, um, you know, it's all about NASCAR because NASCAR, we just had the, you know, we got the, the Bush clash and, you know, the Bush clash is kind of the start of, you know, of NASCAR speed weeks. And, uh, it was, uh, it's an interesting, what did you think of the Bush clash this year? Well, I have to be honest with you. I, I'm not a big fan of the venue. Uh, I'm, you know, I, because for me, I mean, sure, short track racing is is the roots of NASCAR and stock car racing, Grand National Racing, whatever you want to call it. Where it's Which you from. have a lot of experience in. Yeah, and exactly. And I like I like the short tracks, um, but when you start looking at, you know, the type of racetrack that were there, and you know, obviously, the venue is 
the Coliseum, right? And um, you're doing battle in a Coliseum, and that's basically what it was and what it is, in my opinion. You know, you're trying to put 27 cars, you know, on a racetrack like that. And, you know, with this new car, again, you have parity. So the cars are close. Um, you know, just parity is four, six tenths of a second, right? Maybe, you know, so it's difficult for those guys. It's a root and gra gouging concept. And, you know, feelings get hurt and they get hurt immediately. And people are just pushing and shoving and moving people around. And, you know, they, when you get blocked, the racetrack gets blocked on starts. So, I mean, like tonight, I think they had 16 cautions in a 150 lap race. So it, that's a lot of carnage. And, you know, luckily well, the car is resilient. <laughs> the car is very resilient, right? You it was know. a lot of stop. There's yeah. a lot of stoppage, start yeah. and stoppage. And, and that, that does not breed excitement, in yeah. my opinion. But again, for those people that, you know, maybe in the LA market, you know, they don't get an opportunity to see racing up close and personal. So maybe it was more entertaining for them to see the beating and the banging and the spinning and all those things. So from that standpoint, it is probably entertaining from I think the concert was what they came for. Yeah, I think they, maybe the concert <laughs> is what they came for. So, uh, you know, um, that's maybe the crowd was bigger because of it. Uh, oh, the, most the definitely. But, uh, you know, and overall, like I said, it's a great start of the year, you know, to see, you know, the, the driver changes and where they went and how productive they are right out of the barrel. And I think a few surprises, certainly. I think you look at, you know, you know, Eric Almarola with Haas was on the pole and, uh, Haley was was up there in qualifying as well with Colic Racing, and you know Almendinger was very productive as far as some of the early practices and qualifying things as well. Um, I think some, you know, from my views after watching the practices and the heat races and things, I felt like that, you know, Ham Hamlin had a fast car. I thought Truex was probably one of the better cars. Uh, Byron was decent, and surprisingly enough, you know, I mean, you know, obviously Kyle, uh, you know, Kyle Busch, and Austin Dillon had great cars as well. And that's really what really came to fruition, you know, in the race. And the big surprise had to be um, Priest. Priest, yes. Right? Uh, he he did a really good job. And, you know, he's he's a, he's your consummate short track Yes, I was going to say, he's, isn't he the Iowa No, winner? he's from the upper, upper, upper uh, East Coast, you know, from the old modified division. But he won Iowa Xfinity. That was yes, his yes, he first did. That's First correct. Win. When he bet on himself, he mortgaged his house and and, yes. and went to Gibbs and I think it was and ended up winning the race. But you know he comes from the modified tour, which is a beat and bang and short track, you know, um, type of deal where they draft and bump and you know pull slide jobs. And he uh, he started, you know, I think he was mired, you know, towards the back uh, and worked his way very methodically to the front, end up taking the lead, and you know. Hamlin led for a while and really, you know, finally got booted out of the way and then, you know, just dropped like a rock. And then once you got back in the back, you know, he got into some, some pushing and shoving matches, but, uh, really, you know, Austin Dillon did a really nice job. Ty Dillon did a nice and, job. Well, no, Ty, Ty missed the race. Oh, that's right. That's right. He missed the race. That's right. Um, but, but Austin did a really nice job and, you know, ran up front the majority of the time, had a really good car and Kyle, you know, Kyle was fast in the beginning, then got, you know, in a problem and get into the back of the pack, worked his way all the way back up to second and really was in a position to win the race. But, you know, really Truex um, had the fastest car. And I you felt said like. that he did. I asked you at the beginning. Yeah. So I felt like he was, you know, um, I felt like he was probably going to be a factor for sure. And sure enough, you know, ended up 
you know, doing. I really thought somebody would get to his back bumper though and, and use him up, you know, and they would take it, you know? So, uh, I didn't know if he'd pull off a win or not, but, um, I think, you know, Kyle got in the way there a little bit and Austin was a little bit faster than him and kind of gave it up back to him a little bit too late for him to really make a, uh, a charge at Truex. So that pretty much ended their, uh, their opportunity, but overall, um, interesting race, you know, um, some similar, you know, some good races, racing going on there for, you know, for the guys, for, you know, that ran up front and had good cars. So, you know, it's, again, it's not indicative of what will be happening when they get to Daytona. By Definitely not. So, but something that, you know, I think that we need to, you know, kind of broach is, you know, there is a little bit of, you know, you know, grief right now, you know, the sentiments with the drivers right now, because of something that has been implemented for the Daytona 500. And that is that there is no practice whatsoever before they qualify, which is like, but that's insane. Unprecedented. Uh, I've never seen or heard of that, you know, and yeah, I mean, Denny, Ham Denny Ham has been very vocal about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's obviously, you know, even the light about, you know, saying a lot of things about, you know, that he's been secretly fined for, you know, things disruptive to the, to NASCAR, you know, I mean, <laughs> so, you know, un, un, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm sure fines. He's like, oh, wow. Yeah. But anyways, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, again, I, I have to, I have to agree in, you know, in this regard that I just don't see how you can take this level and this car uh to the racetrack and go with absolutely no practice you know you got drivers like travis pastrana trying to come there who has been in a car you know in 10 years well and what if what if we were going to the daytona 500 with quinn that first year and he had never done this i mean that's that's just ludicrous and this is the biggest race of our year well, it's we start bowl. with the super bowl yeah. And so when you start with the Super Bowl uh, and you have all the money, you have all the best parts and equipment or whatever, and you don't get an opportunity, I mean, to go and, and showcase it or practice it or know what you have and put your best foot forward for your sponsors. I think that's, that's a, I mean, it's very uh, alarming, especially if I look at it from, from a sponsorship, you know, perspective, really, this is a sponsor driven sport. And you have an obligation to sponsors. And when they're spending sums of large sums of money and, you know, they compromise your ability, you know, to go and take, you know, you know, when you have new driver changes and you have new people working, you have an influx of change, constant change in this business. You need time to work together. You should be able to test. Now, you know, I mean, they have had a couple of tests, I believe. They went to Phoenix, I think, you know, maybe more of a, you know, more of a test for everybody to go do those things. But Phoenix know, is not Daytona. Phoenix is not Daytona. And so, you know, and again, guys that, you know, that are coming to drive for special open teams to try to make the race. That's they didn't have really, the opportunity to go test. Right. That's the really who's going to suffer is those open teams because that will actually determine who makes the race and talk about sponsors. There's nothing worse than going to Daytona and you don't make the race. That is the worst feeling in the world. And and um this no practice will definitely part. Only way that this even is remotely feasible is because of the charter system. Because the 36 teams that are chartered, they're automatically in the Daytona 500. So they're really, all they're, all they're doing for qualifying is giving them a starting position for the 120, the 150, 
at qualifying races, which is just determining your starting position. So they're not fearful of not being in the race, but you know, you're not, um, well, there's going to be six or seven cars that are though. Well, the, the open cars, there's going to be, you know, at least 41, maybe 42 open cars. So, you know, a couple of people will physically go home. So, you know, there is a lot riding on that. And, you know, the guy that qualifies good and qualifies poorly, you know, is certainly compromised, you know, if you're in the back, right? So again, there's a lot of things, but I just wanted to bring light of that, that if, you know, some of you, you know, hear some things or you're not aware of that, it certainly is an intriguing, you know, aspect for the Daytona 500. It's never happened before. Yeah, it's unprecedented. So I'm um, interesting tidbit there, but it will be interesting to see how things go. So, um, but uh, you know, we're, we're only a week away here. We got, you know, for the Super Bowl and then the Daytona 500 and uh, there'll be some exciting things, uh, you know, getting ready for that. So looking forward to that. And then we will be all on, all in on uh, race theory from there about a lot of racing will start to, uh, to move forward right after that. You know, of course, Trans Am is, is off to, uh, you know, Sebring after the week after Daytona. And then, you know, we're, we're full into racing. So uh, it's, it's upon us. Yep. Lots of exciting things coming. Even though Puxatani says we've got six more weeks of winter, or at least we've got racing. <laughs> so, and um, what's really exciting upcoming is the website is live today, y'all. So go to DerekCope.club or Racetheory.club. And the first thing that we are doing, in fact, you can do it right now, is advertising Derek's book. The first in his series, Changing Gears, will be available for purchase. It is now available for pre-order now. And this is the first in a series of short stories about his journey as a professional race car driver. And a lot of his pearls of wisdom are given uh, with stories as to how he learned those. And I will tell you, I have edited the first chapter and it is phenomenal. It has humor. It has intrigue. It has tear-jerking sadness as well as just truth bombs that I know everyone is going to be able to enjoy and um, gather things from. So please go to the website today and uh, let us know you were there by leaving a comment. Everything is on there, including the podcast, as well as apparel, um, as well as the Derek Cope Club. Why don't you tell us about the club, babe? Well, the club, uh, there's a lot of things that are, you know, I guess going to make up the club, right? I mean, we're going to have opportunities for autographed, you know, you know, collector's cards and, you know, we're going to give discounts for, you know, for merchandise, obviously, but um, there's going to be like a members only group, you know, where we can do some Zoom calls and have some interaction there, right, personally, or so, you know, we can basically look each other in the eye and convey what, you know, we're trying to get question across. Question and answer. Question and answer. So, you know, we're able to, you know, open the floor up and really elaborate on questions and thoughts and concerns that you may have. Or, you know, you know when it comes to mentoring drivers or coaching drivers, um, you know, I think this will give an opportunity for, some dialogue and some one-on-one -on -one that, you know, you can get a, maybe a conception or, or not, whether or not, you know, I can help, you know, with, um, you know, your race team or your, 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 you know, your child as far as what they're doing in racing, or maybe ideas on how to move forward with that. 
um, you know, a chance to win signed memorabilia as well. But uh, we, we, we're looking at a lot of different things that we'll showcase on here as well as time um, goes. And we've got some exciting things that we'll broach later on once we get a little closer to that. But some exciting things, and at least we got now a platform for you to go and interact and have accessibility to us. And I think that's important just to have a place that you can, you know, can go. Yes, I'm very, very excited. Heather's done an awesome job on the site, but we always welcome your feedback if there's something that you see or don't see. But the Cope Club is only $9.95 a month. And what it does is it gives you access to this ebook for free. As each chapter comes out, you get a preview of the book first and you get it at no charge. And when the book is completely released with all the chapters, then you will get a copy, um, autographed copy of that book. So the Cope Club has a lot of value um, in it. So go to that website, take a look at it. And um, as always, thank you for listening. And we appreciate y'all being here. We will see you next time on Race Theory. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope 00 and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.